Full disclosure, I'm Robin Farzad. everywhere is let's cut let's give people less and charge them more money and i haven't seen anywhere in a local market where somebody has said you know what i'm not worried about losses for a little while i want you guys to become the dominant news source here and i'm going to staff you accordingly i haven't seen that happen it's 2018 we're into two decades of newspapers even newspapers owned by billionaires shedding staff left and right My guests think this is precisely the time to invest in local journalism. Stay with us. Full Disclosure is made possible by Elwood Thompson's, a small, independent, local, organic market in the RVA at the top of Carytown, but really so much more than that. You have Indian Wednesdays, a spectacular breakfast bar, Blanchard's Coffees. You can make your own flatbreads. There's a wine bar at the beat at night. Visit them at the corner of Elwood and Thompson streets, hence the name, and at elwoodthompsons.com. Joining me in studio from the Virginia Mercury, a new nonprofit, nonpartisan, independent news organization, is editor Robert Zullo and reporter Ned Oliver. Uh, these two veteran newspaper men have a combined quarter century of ink on their hands. How are you? <laughs> Never been better. Good. Thanks for having us. Uh, I'm going to throw up a jump ball. Uh, and look, it's not it's not a, a question to kind of bait you or anything. Warren Buffett was apparently the savior of your employer the Richmond Times-Dispatch, before you decamped for the Virginia Mercury. That was supposed to be a dream arrangement. This is a guy who, if he doesn't care how his dairy queens are doing, why would he care about a little, maybe, you know, $10, 25000000 million purchase that he made? My first stint with the Times-Dispatch was in 2012, and it was right, I was hired right before the Berkshire Hathaway acquisition from Media General, and it, there was such a sigh of relief, and there was a lot of enthusiasm when uh, Berkshire Hathaway bought the media general papers. And, you know, in the interim, I left and worked in Pittsburgh for a few years and then came back to the Times-Dispatch in 2016. And the, you know, the mood was just very different. You know, we've, there had been layoffs um, every year since I returned in 2016. And you just never saw a vision and you never saw any investment um, that I could tell. So I know that it really turned out disappointing for a lot of people. That had that had hoped that you know he would be somebody to provide the financial support and a plan to kind of to bring the papers uh, into a sustainable digital future. And to take you back to 2012, it was the spring of 2012 when Warren Buffett and Berkshire Hathaway made this deal with Media General, which was the longtime owner of the Richmond Times Dispatch. Media General owned these coveted local TV stations which are really flush in a swing district on election years where everybody's advertising during the evening news. But the albatross became the newspapers, including the Richmond Times-Dispatch. In May of 2012, he struck a deal to buy the papers for $142 million in cash, which suddenly made the Oracle of Omaha one of the largest publishers in the United States. And we are six years removed from that. He is, you know, older. Uh, but this also soured on, on on another person who attempted to do this, all this, albeit in a bigger way, is Rupert Murdoch and Dow Jones with the Wall Street Journal. He paid $5 billion, and I believe that was in 2007. And he had to write down a ton of that, Ned. Yeah, I, I was so excited when I 
got a job at the Times Dispatch, I was I remember telling people, yeah, I got that Buffett money behind me now. And um, I think it was like six months after I started that the first round of layoffs uh, came down. And it was really confusing because the whole time I'd been there, they were stressing we're going to make this change to a digital future. And the first round of layoffs that I remember was the entire web team, like the web, like the only people in the room who knew stuff about the website were focused on producing the website, but also had some background in coding and could produce interactives to a certain extent. Um, it was it was it was very surprising because, as you guys know, that has always been a cost center. And the payoff was supposed to be far out. Invest in digital, invest in digital, look good. All the eyeballs are clearly going there with mobile and and iPads and whatnot. But it never quite moved the needle versus the albeit really quickly diminishing full page ads in the newspaper. Yeah, I think there was a, you know, at various places in my newspaper career, there was a sense that, you know, you were going to replace print ad revenue with digital revenue and then... You know, lo and behold, the Facebooks and the Googles just sucked up so much of that that it took, uh, I think it took publishers a long time and too long to realize that the only digital path forward was going to be digital subscription revenue. And, you know, unfortunately, I think a lot of publishers are getting to that kind of late. And to make a product worth subscribing to you've got to invest. You have to give people content and you have to give them a lot of it and you have to give them things that they can't get anywhere else. Now seize on this aspect because my in-laws here in Richmond, they are print subscribers to the Richmond Times-Dispatch. And I've noticed now increasingly when I try to click a link on the Richmond Times-Dispatch, for example, this week, uh, a friend of, of, of ours, I saw this, this link on Twitter today. Um, she is going to medical school. She was a ballerina. She changed her life to honor her mother who passed away from cancer. You immediately hit that. Uh, we are at the beginning of the month, and I hit up against a paywall. And I have to tell you, and I'm sure this is very familiar to you now that you are in the realm of a, of a startup, it's one thing for the New York Times and the Washington Post to demand me to hit up against the paywall. Even the Wall Street Journal, which to a certain extent is B2B, a lot of investment bankers write that off. But for a publication like the Times-Dispatch, however venerable it is, which under Warren Buffett even has been cutting and slashing muscle and coverage for six years to now suddenly turn around, even with a letter from the publisher saying that print ads not going to subsidize us. You need to be a subscriber. And the idea that I'm going to pay eight or nine dollars a month, it's a very hard sell. Yeah. I, I don't know what to tell you about that. I don't it's... know. I, I I would I would say I don't you know I, I still am a print subscriber to the T D. I hope other people uh will be too. I, I just I think that even what we're doing, we're very excited about what we're doing. I don't think that we can really hope or any uh, you know, small online news organization can hope to replace what a daily newspaper, uh, even one that has cut staff like the TD, can, uh, can do for a metro area. And I think everyone, if, it ever, if the day ever comes, people will miss them when they're gone. Um, I don't think $8.99 is a lot to ask. <clears throat> uh, Maybe we should play that song from Cinderella before the show. <laughs> Don't know what you got. Till it's gone. Is that Cinderella or Rat? I'm sorry. Go ahead. This is the kind of show we run here. I, I, it is. It is Cinderella. I know my. Uh, Don't my... know what you got. 
I do know my hair metal. <laughs> it's one to... of many things he brings to the table. <laughs> That's great. You have great hair, by the way. You can't detect that in radio. But let's finally, before we get on to other more pressing topics, the denouement, this whole Buffett marriage, which was ballyhooed in 2012, was the headline that came out in July. I'm reading from the Wall Street Journal. Lee Enterprises in pact to manage Berkshire Hathaway newspapers. Warren Buffett says the challenges to the industry are clear, but I believe we can benefit by joining efforts. And... Uh, I, I don't understand the rationale of that. I mean, Lee is a traditional publisher. It has cut. I don't know what the scale is. It's going to say they're going to manage print and digital operations for Berkshire Hathaway Media's 30 daily newspapers. There was a, a, a promise of a kind of a, a, a dividend, a, a performance fee paid to them. It's almost one step removed from private equity. And you're also following the theatrics with Tronk, Tribune, that, that awful name that they had and what just happened at the New York Daily News a couple of weeks ago. So... It very much remains to be seen if there is a business model for um, a daily outside of one of the mega dailies, be it the Washington Post, which was bought by a billionaire and Jeff Bezos, uh, the Los Angeles Times, which was bought by a billionaire and Patrick Soon Shing, uh, the Wall Street Journal, which was bought by a billionaire. We talked about the Boston Globe and John Henry. Yeah, uh, the, that, the Lee announcement came a couple weeks after we left the paper, and uh, it, I think Bob and I both sort of we're a little relieved that we had gotten out. Lee has a reputation for being pretty ruthless. Uh, like you said, they don't, they're not known for being innovators. Um, the fact that they have a financial incentive, like a direct financial incentive to improve margins, uh, it, to, to everyone there, I don't think anyone is, is uh, hopeful that it's going to work out much better than it had been. And if anything, it's probably going to get worse. I mean, the the RTD was making money every year. The cuts were to maintain profit margins is what is what we had always been told. So I, I think that with this arrangement, it's likely that's going to continue with Lee being directly financially motivated to, you know. Keep. And just to give you an idea and, and, and put closure on this is last year accompanying a huge uh, round of layoffs, uh, Berkshire Hathaway cut almost 300 jobs at its newspaper division. The CEO of that division was quoted in the Wall Street Journal. He said, our digital revenue is not growing fast enough yet to offset print revenue losses from both advertising and circulation. It is imperative that we take this action. Otherwise, some of our operations will become unprofitable. One last time, he spent something on the order of $150 million in cash, which is totally a rounding error on Berkshire Hathaway. I'm not trying to make a normative statement, but if they're going to scrutinize one newspaper here, one jewel newspaper in the Richmond Times-Dispatch for margins to the extent that they're going to gut the entire digital division, that just tells you how how merciless this business is. That was what never made any sense to me and, and, and a lot of people that work there. You know, like you mentioned, that sum that they, you know, paid for all of the media general papers is a pittance for Berkshire Hathaway. And why would you do it? Why would you want to do it unless you were serious about a solution for local news, for sustainable local news? And I just personally, I just never saw the interest. I never saw uh, the investment. I never saw them... Um, you know, do much beyond lip service that they wanted us to be essential to the communities and they were invested in trying to, you know, to, to do the digital transformation. I think, you know, the decision to turn over their management to Lee really, you know, is a very sad coda on that. And it kind of gives a lie to, you know, what they were preaching for, for six years prior. 
Full disclosure, I'm Robin Farzad. We are talking to Robert Zullo and Ned Oliver. They are at the brand spanking new Virginia Mercury, which is a, a non-for-profit, non-partisan, independent news organization. They emerged from the ooze of the Richmond Times-Dispatch, which was just disgorged by uh, Berkshire Hathaway, effectively. How many metaphors did I mix there, sir? Uh, I didn't count. <laughs> Block your metaphor, young man. Uh, talk to me about the Mercury. Uh, how did it happen? It was a beautiful dovetailing with this latest round of layoffs and, and buyouts, I would imagine, at the Times-Dispatch. You guys are prolific bylines. Uh, this is the first time I've, I've met you both in person. Uh, who came knocking? How did this opportunity happen? What is the Mercury? Bob? Uh, it's you're you're more right than you know in how it dovetailed with uh, with Berkshire Hathaway the last day, the last round of layoffs uh, that BH had. Uh, my wife found the job listing on journalism jobs for an editor for a new nonprofit news startup covering state government. And she said, you should apply. And I did and went through uh, several rounds of uh, interviews. This is an initiative of the Hopewell Fund, which is a DC nonprofit. Uh, and I went, th you know, I had a lot of angst about leaving a newspaper. It's the only career I've ever had. Uh, I, you know, I, I really agonized over it. And I just came to the realization that, you know, when, it, when am I going to have another chance to do something like this, to, to try something new and, and start something from the ground up? And uh, once I had made my decision, I kind of identify, identified people who I thought might be you know, good candidates. And we're not all from the TD. Most of us are, but we, uh, we do have Michelle Hankerson who came from the Virginian pilot, which has its own. He's also being gutted. <laughs> yeah. Has its own, uh, tale of, of corporate, uh, of, of new corporate ownership. Great euphemism. <laughs> and we're part of a project called the newsroom and there, there are similar sites. They're either pre-existing sites, uh, in other States that are getting funding, uh, from the Hopewell fund or there are startups like us. There's a website in Tallahassee, uh, Florida covering state government there and in Nevada and there are existing ones in Maine and Maryland uh, and some other places. Now we haven't had Aaron Kramer on this show but it's always been my read and I've been a Richmonder for six years now that he came in as a former Times Dispatch uh, business reporter and disrupted the business section of the Times Dispatch by starting something called Richmond BizSense which is now very popular in the B2B community. People buy subscriptions and everything. He is able to sustain, and, and to the best of my knowledge, it's not a not-for-profit. He pays people. He scales up. He uses this model in other cities, even Denver, where the uh, the, the big newspaper is kind of abdicated or gutted coverage. And a lot of times, you know, I, I uh, Bloomberg bought my publication, Business Week, as, as, I, as I told you earlier. You open up uh, business sections of newspapers right now, and there's typically a puff piece, and inside it's all Newswire copy. It's all AP, Associated Press, Washington Post, uh, Syndicate. And the others, and, and you're kind of you're really craving, especially if you're in real estate or you want local intel. You want to pay for uh, targeted business news that's going to be strategic for you. Did you follow that example? For example, you know you you are coming in here and you can disrupt local and state house coverage where the the, the big newspapers kind of leaving stuff on the margins. Well, we had always even before I found that the job listing, uh, some of us had talked at the TD, had talked about a new a nonprofit model and just I, I I came to believe that the nonprofit model was the best donor supported. That's what we we intend to grow beyond our seed money from the Hopewell Fund. So mm -hmm. it, very soon you'll be able to donate uh, directly uh, from our website. We'll have our own Virginia 501c3 
down the road, hopefully there'll be a board and we'll be a, <laughs> a fully fledged uh, nonprofit organization here in Virginia. But do you, we never do you feel free to, to to say whatever you want, for example, about Dominion or Altria, which I never got the impression that the Times Dispatch was able to. I definitely do. I don't think that I was ever prevented necessarily from saying or reporting certain things in the past. But uh, when you start reporting on certain topics at big daily papers, I think uh, people start to you face more scrutiny within the newsroom or you self-censor because you know that certain things are going to get a lot of pushback. Um, does yeah, that, make sense? it absolutely yeah. makes sense to me. I mean, our our parent company at Business Week before it was uh, owned by Bloomberg was uh, McGraw Hill, which had Standard and Poor's. And if you're ever to come in and question the ratings agencies, um, the, the the chilling effect that it had from self censoring, nobody kind of wanted to own that that stink if it had to be taken up to to corporate counsel. And I wonder in this town where two companies are just so supreme and the newspaper is teetering and depends on them for uh, a lot of this events business. I never got the impression that they could go and step on those toes. I mean, you've covered the environment. Tell me that. Hmm. <laughs> and moreover, well, I can say... moreover, if you're a writer at one of these places, I got to say it. Hey, we're full disclosure. A great call option is if this doesn't work for you, you go work in at Dominion in PR or, you know, they end up buying an online publication from an, another friend that I have. They do hire a lot of people in uh, from local media. Um and I will say this, that no one at the Times-Dispatch ever asked me to tamp down uh, my coverage of Dominion. It was made clear to me by people at Dominion that they had met with the publisher about my coverage, but that never made it through channels, you know, back to me through the newsroom, which is good because that's how a newsroom should operate. Hmm. Ned is right that there have been questions about our, fi- our our funding and who is this nonprofit that's funding them, but there's no big newspaper that's totally insulated from the pressures of its advertisers. I mean, so the idea that the newspaper is the paragon of, you know, independent uh, coverage is is not totally accurate. Um, I can say that we're we make all the decisions about what we cover and how we cover it amongst the four of us in our new, in our little our little little newsroom with its bare walls and we're still getting furniture and um there, I, there's one there's one painting that Ned found at a secondhand uh, Ned, well, walk me through the courtship. You got the call from Bob after he accepted the offer. I think Bob pulled me outside one day and was like, do you have a second to talk and floated it. And I was immediately excited. And then I had a lot of questions. That's where I want that's where I want you to take me. A lot of questions is is (laughs) you bring that report the investigative journalist scrutiny to bear with the owners here. What is your best interest? We've had, for example, in financial journalism, there are some people that are uh, some independent news orgs that are being accused by – you saw it with Elon Musk, that short sellers who have a vested interest in investigative journalism that brings down a stock Mm -hmm. so that they can profit will finance that. there are people that been accused that on, on, on Twitter. There's a. There, th- I want to get a sense for the questions you asked, the scrutiny you brought, and the answers that were given to you. Yeah. Well, to start, I I kind of was curious who was the funder uh, behind the Hopewell Fund, and I was able to find out through my contacts and reporting independently. And, uh, but I we you know also received assurance that we were going to be completely independent and able to you know, operate in a way that we felt like was was right and make all the decisions in-house. Uh, and yeah, it, it honestly, I mean, I had a lot of questions, but it didn't take me long to get comfortable with it. A- after that, the biggest thing was, I think, kind of like Bob, like working at a daily newspaper is really fun. Like even when it's not, it's still fun, this sort of 
daily race. It's called the <laughs> daily miracle, you know, because you never think it's actually going to work out and it still arrives on everyone's doorstep uh, every day. So, so leaving that behind and it's, it's a great staff, a lot of fun people to work with. It was, it was a hard decision um, there more so than the questions about how it would operate. Like I know it's a risk, um, but I'm kind of comfortable with that, looking at how the industry is going. Staying at the Times Dispatch is also a risk. Bob, will you walk me through that risk to the extent you can? I mean, this is a private company. It says, um, the news outlet, the Virginia Mercury, which will also feature original and guest commentary on a range of topics, will be staffed full-time by four veteran Virginia newspaper journalists. The Mercury is funded by the Hopewell Fund, a 501c3 public charity that specializes in helping donors, social entrepreneurs, and other changemakers quickly launch new innovative projects. And we've seen other projects nationally with ProPublica, incredible journalism that was done by ProPublica and, and people joining hands, say, between NPR and ProPublica or PBS and ProPublica. And not-for-profits can really make a difference. And it's one thing if you're not-for-profit, not by design, which Berkshire Hathaway Media and Richmond Times Dispatch were coming, but by design, if you don't have to meet a certain target well, they were, they hurdle. Were still, they, were still prof- they were still making profit. Well, yeah, well so, so take me so take me through this. How much runway do you have? What's the risk? Uh, we are um, I don't want to go into too much about how much you know what our specific commitments are. Um, but it's every starting everything new is a risk. Um, you know we are we're we are good for several years uh, at our current uh, funding level. and but our goal is very, very quickly, you know, within the next few months to start positioning ourselves to get Virginia-based support, to broaden our donor base, um, to become a, uh, a true, you know, Virginia entity, um, you know, both in, in who funds us and people who eventually become our, our board members, which we're hoping to, you know, that's down the road, but that's eventually the model that we see ourselves as managed by a nonprofit board. So you have to wear the biz dev hat and the the journalist hat right now. I mean, you are posting bylines, you're editing, and you're out there pounding the pavement. Not not so much yet, because we're only in our fourth week, but yet yeah, that uh, very soon that will be, uh, those will be the, you know, the kinds of things that that will come under my my job description, I guess. Do you have an aspiration for a size of newsroom? Obviously, it's a it's a buyer's market. It's a hirer's market. If the Times Dispatch is going to be, you know, letting people go with the the pilot, uh, you know, maybe your old stomping grounds, Ned Style Weekly, which is also was owned by the pilot. I'm not sure if it still is. It still is. It yeah. kind of left it alone for a long time to do great investigative journalism. But everybody's the the harsh realities are catching up with everybody. Yeah, it's it's style is worse off than the Times Dispatch. I mean, if you proportionally. It's when I started there in 2012, it had a staff of two reporters, a news editor and an executive editor. And now it's down to just the executive editor and someone who covers food and culture. That's the Alt Weekly for everybody listening yeah. um, here in, in Richmond, Virginia. You've seen the same thing happen with the Village Voice. You know, my pals in Miami with the Miami New Times, I think they're doing great work. And you kind of have to, I hate that this is the stereotype, you lean on hungry millennials who want to make a name for themselves. Who, I don't know if it's your model. You stock a fridge with LaCroix water and a high deductible insurance plan and go get them, kids, you know? Because there's no pot at the end of the rainbow for a, a newspaper job or a star job anywhere else. Well, no, there's we, no LaCroix at our office. No, that there is actually. <laughs> oh, there's secret LaCroix that I haven't been told. No, about. I put it in the fridge. Well, the New York Times is a great example. They managed to thread the needle somehow. They is don't it LaCroix have the or LaCroix. 
I, it's like they, they take, it's <laughs> a Wisconsin call. River, I believe. Yeah, it, I, I learned about that. So yeah, the New York Times has convinced people, especially since the Trump bump, to to pay for subscribers. They've had bang up numbers, and the, you know there was a great McKinsey project years ago. But that's the New York Times. They have a completely different audience. Completely I mean, different audience. Un, unlimited potential there. A newspaper like the Times Dispatch, which is their ambitions are increasingly local and smaller. I mean, the, have we seen evidence of anywhere in the United States of local paying off? Local for local sake. That's my question. I'm not aware of a great sterling example of that personally. I'm, I'm not aware either, but I, I also would say that I don't know that anyone's really tried to become that dominant, you know, to give people a reason to subscribe. I mean, the, the trend everywhere is let's cut, let's give people less and charge them more money. And I haven't seen anywhere in a local uh, market where Somebody has said, you know what, I'm not worried about losses for a little while. I want you guys to become the dominant, you know, news source here and I'm going to staff you accordingly. I haven't seen that happen either. So, I mean, maybe I'm a Pollyanna, but when Ned was talking about leaving the TD, I mean, I I had the same. It's not just the fun of working in a newsroom, which is fun and it's weird and different and uh, so many strange people, terrible and awesome all at once. But it's coming with that, you know, it, it's having your name under that flag, that nameplate that's been a community institution for, you know, 100, 180, 150 years or, you know, however long some of these newspapers have been around. I mean, when I worked at the Post-Gazette in Pittsburgh, it was the first newspaper published west of the Allegheny Mountains. Uh, you know, they had a old – they had one of their, you know, first editions under glass and it's just, you know, working for some uh, – an entity like that is uh, – but you the know, diminishing... It sounds corny, but it's it's kind of like awe-inspiring when you're first starting out. When it you're first really starting cool. out, but yeah. you're now you're ink-stained wretches, right, with a combined 23 years of experience in this. And I want to take this conversation to social media. To a certain extent, you hang your own you know, plates up there on Twitter, on Facebook. I met you over Twitter. I've been following you, Ned, forever on Twitter. You don't follow me, man. You got no love. I apologize. Uh, That's an oversight. But that's great. That's great when your byline can kind of stand out. Like, that's the guy. You know, Ronan Farrow is one thing, but we know, like, we've had Andrew Ross Sorkin of the New York Times on the show. They call it in finance circles portable alpha. They're following you increasingly, and the publication is kind of subordinated, especially if the publication is diluted. Talk to me about the power of social media, maybe as an equalizer in this case. You you make or break great news. You post it out there on Twitter. You hashtag it RVA, RVA you know, delegate or something like that. Um, we're talking about the, the anniversary of the Charlottesville atrocity. That's going to get picked up. Yeah, to to a certain extent, I was I was really surprised when when we started. Uh, I was imagining writing stories. You know, we'd have no audience yet. You know, get a hundred clicks if I'm lucky. We've done far better than that, and and I think a lot of it is our social media followings. But but I don't think I think some of it is sort of over amplified. Twitter is not a great driver of traffic necessarily. Um, if it's a really interesting story, maybe it's good for a few hundred clicks. Um, but it, yeah, but here's the deal. You, you, you've been going back and forth to Charlottesville, right, this week? Yeah. So suppose it's something huge and Rachel Maddow picks it up and she's got millions of followers and that's retweeted. Suddenly you are – I mean you, you, you put up a shingle as the Virginia Mercury. Why can't I have the Virginia Mercury at people on? I don't have to find the, the, the state crime or the state house reporter at the Times-Dispatch. In theory, it should be a great equalizer. It's not a matter of the Times-Dispatch flack hitting MSNBC over the head. It's more they can find you. Yeah, that, that that's truly a plausible scenario for sure. Yeah, I think that's right. I think that one of the 
calculations that I made in hiring people is, you know, you mentioned it being a buyer's market for uh, budding young journalists. But to start out, I wanted established people. I wanted people that kind of came with an audience because I knew that it would be tough to start something new. And if you hired reporters who brought their readers with them, uh, that would give us a leg up as we launched. Full disclosure, I'm Robin Farzad. We are talking to Ned Oliver and Bob Zulo of the brand spanking new Virginia Mercury. It's a not-for-profit, nonpartisan, independent news organization, which is out there covering everything in, in Virginia from criminal justice, health, energy and environment, transportation, uh, no special interest for profit, special interest behind it. Um, in the 10 or 12 minutes or so that we have left, talk to me about the here and now, the Virginia here and now. Some of the maybe third rail issues that the traditional newspaper maybe doesn't want to touch. Uh, we were talking offline, for example, about the one-year anniversary of uh, what happened in Charlottesville. And I want to take it back to Richmond because there is a bit of a controversy now. It's it's slow burning about Monument Avenue here where we have the monument problem times, what, five or six? Yeah, probably more than that if you look. <laughs> Last weekend, uh, there was a defacement of the Robert E. Lee monument with red uh, spray paint. At the bottom, it said BLM for Black Lives Matter. I wonder, Ned, and you've covered this before, what is going to happen if and when somebody winches down one of these statues at 3 a.m. in the morning? How yeah. does the city handle it? Who shows up here? I, I have honestly wondered that exact same thing, and it, it honestly is a miracle to me that someone hasn't tried that yet, given all of the debate and willingness among people to throw paint on it, for instance, uh, a truck and a I'm not I don't want to sound like I'm encouraging it. I'm definitely not. It's just surprised me that that hasn't happened yet. I have no I just have no idea how the city responded that would put them in uh, quite a quite a position, I think. We have an African American mayor who deputized the panel to come out and say maybe at first we should add context to some of these statues. I think most recently he says, yeah, Jeff Davis should come down. There's no reason to have a monument to Jefferson Davis. Well, in that monument in particular is is really insane if you if you look at the symbolism built in. I, there's this 80-foot tall column above him with a, you know, a woman in a toga pointing upwards, who's this allegorical figure that the sculptor created to represent the vindication of the South in the eyes of God. Um, I, I don't know, that strikes me as kind of uh, in 20, <laughs> 2018 to be a, a pretty remarkable symbol for a city to to have. Um, well, I was shocked last year watching what happened in Charlottesville. We talked about Charlottesville, to my mind, is not this bastion of, of kind of old Southism. There are streaks of it, but then you have you know, Merrill Streep, right, going up and down into shops near the UVA. You have Horse Country, Corin Capshaw, and Dave Matthews Band. It has a little Austin flair to it. It's it's much more blue-leaning and, and progressive. And they want to bring down this statue last year. And it's not the, the, the Southern apologists, you know, the South will rise again types who showed up. But it was the neo-Nazis, man. They really showed their hands last year. And so I really wonder, to bring it back to our hometown here, how this is going to happen here. You talk about Monument Avenue and what, a mile or two-mile long, two long stretch of Monument Avenue? Would you cordon it off? I'm not trying to be provocative, but this is really on my mind well, right like now. Like how would you handle it if, if people were to actually— How in the world would you handle it if people show up? And, you know, they went last weekend for the Robert E. Lee statue, you know, like the gold standard of Confederate generals. Yeah, I mean, I think that they've shown, um, you know, after Charlottesville, I think it was about a month afterward, there was this uh, sort of two-bit group out of um, Tennessee, I believe, that calls themselves the New Confederate States of America. They they honestly mostly sell, like, 
T-shirts with Confederate flags on them and like camouflage bikinis. But I think they were kind of seeing like, oh, we can get a lot of attention if we come to Richmond. So they planned this rally and everyone just lost their mind in the city. Um, it, it got blown totally out of proportion. No one is looking at, all right, who's behind this thing? And it's like these literally three people. Um, and, and everyone's treating it as like the second coming of, of the neo-Nazis in Charlottesville. They, they, the result was the state police, the city police showed, I think, how they would handle those kinds of rallies in the future, even though it was a completely different scenario. They totally locked down the street. Um, they set up three or four, I can't quite recall, separate sort of gated areas. Um, you, you, you could hardly get around. Um, they were stopping people from bringing in anything sharp. They couldn't stop people from bringing in guns just under state law. That's not something that the, the city's allowed to do. But. And, and Bob Zulo, check, check, I mean, wait, wait for this is a, is a perfect segue. Uh, you were a former armored car guard, right? <laughs> so I don't, explain a little bit to the extent you understand open carry in this state. Uh, before the 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 speeding car thing happened, you had all of these people, uh, Klansmen and friends of Klansmen and maybe privately hired mercenaries on the sidelines in Charlottesville with, with AR-15s. So what happens if they actually use it correctly in defense? Are the cops or the state troopers not supposed to shoot at them? Do you get a Boston massacre type thing like who shot? I really want I really want to know. I don't know. I don't have the answer to that question. Hey, I, but you were a former armored car guard. Well, I can tell you that when I was an armored car guard for Dunbar Armored, um, I I put that on my bio on the website to kind of as a little bit of a is a kind of a humorous thing to show that I'm not just I never went to journalism school. I did graduate from William and Mary. Uh, but I never went to journalism school. I started doing this job a few years after college. And in the interim, <laughs> I was working a lot of odd jobs. One of them was for Dunbar Armored here in Richmond. Um, but for that job, I had to go get a Virginia armed security license. Uh, and I had to pass. I had to take a, a weekend's worth of classroom instruction. I had to pass a range qualification. Um, but my understanding of open carry in Virginia is that's that's the kind of the alpha and omega of it. You are allowed to, to open carry, you know, weapons in Virginia. You were allowed to walk into this radio studio with an AR-15 strapped around your back, right? Uh, I, I think I, – I don't know. The I think – The owners of the studio, it's private property. You could prevent someone from bringing it Yeah, I don't think you, you can – I don't think you can do it anywhere. But uh, UVA, for example, last year, that was not – you yeah. couldn't exert private property rights in yeah. saying that these people cannot show up with AR-15s? Right. UVA, the city of Charlottesville, any governmental entity is not uh, – does not have the leeway under state law to, to limit people's right to carry weapons. I mean to the point where you can bring a gun into city hall. But as far as what happens if somebody actually, somebody actually did fire uh, – uh, discharge a weapon at Charlottesville last year. Well, somebody right? did, yeah. yeah. No one noticed because it was such a crazy scene. Um, it took three or four days. I think the ACLU had caught a video of it and they eventually released it. And the guy was arrested. <laughs> he was a KKK leader from the Baltimore area. And then um, we saw some other guy with a spray can, right? Right, fighting back to uh, the uh, fighting back the Klansman like he was. He had a hairspray and a oh, big right. lighter. Yeah, the the torch flamethrower and then, situation. I mean, it was just it, it's such a beautiful place to visit. I'm in the parking garage in the Charlottesville Mall during the Virginia Book Festival, and I realized that this is where people were head stomped, you know, curb stomped. It's so jarring, and maybe this is taking you out of your 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 coverage area, but maybe not. 
Charlottesville got a bad name from that it's, man. It's really surprising. It's like synonymous me. with Ferguson in, yeah. a, in a city of, of infamy or Jonestown. Which is crazy to think about knowing Charlottesville, this like little liberal place with the beautiful downtown mall. And now people who aren't from Virginia think of it as, yeah, this place filled with Nazis, like full time Nazi place. I mean, there's really only, you know, I'm not going out of limb here by saying there's really only one person to blame for that. And, and that's uh, Jason Kessler, um, who made this local decision to, you know, they decided that they didn't want the Lee statue there anymore. The council, um, the city council of Charlottesville did not right. want the Robert E. Lee statue. And there are a whole bunch of complex legal complications, you know, with Virginia law about whether they can remove that. But that was, a, you know, a decision that duly elected uh you know, representatives of Charlottesville made and, uh, you know, Kessler decided to use it as a um, an opportunity to plan this Unite the Right rally. And, you know, I think we did a, uh, with the Times-Dispatch last year, we kind of did a, um, a TikTok. Uh, I don't know if new, non-newspaper people will know what that is, but of what, how this all unfolded. Minute by minute. Yeah. And Ned, Ned uh, kind of wrote the lead and I think he described it well, like it became this, you know, uh, opportunity for these people from kind of the dark corners of the internet. I think that was the term, correct me if that wasn't the phrase you used, but the dark corners of the internet to, you know, make a public show of force. And unfortunately, Charlottesville became that place. But anyone who's been there, you know, is, uh, you know, knows, knows what it's like and that it's not, you know, that, that doesn't define it. And the, the fallacy it. in thinking about this for people who've never been there is that a bunch of Charlottesville ruffians perpetrated this one. In reality, uh, the, the guy who committed vehicular homicide was what are you, an Ohio, Ohio person. Yeah. A lot of people came from North Carolina, Kentucky. ProPublica and the likes are still Alabama. identifying some of the names, mm-hmm. uh, kind of using the, the dark arts of doxing people. They found this one, what, uh, uh, PhD candidate at, at like the UCLA or something in like facial recognition stuff. It's really uh, unbelievable how prepared the press and the local government and the police were last year. I think, though, Ned made a good point in his story for us this week, though, that the uh, the activists in Charlottesville, you know, are very, uh, you know, are, are very skeptical and leery of that description that, hey, this was all outside people that were responsible for this and this isn't Charlottesville. And I would kick it to you, Ned, to, to kind of go over what they told you is that, no, that Charlottesville has some own, its own problems that it needs to address on race. Yeah, I think a lot of people in Charlottesville, particularly uh, people of color, are are kind of bristling at the idea that, that you know, business types are saying we need to get back to normal. Uh, to them, the normal is, you know, uh, the day-to-day systemic racism that plays out everywhere. And they they want to see it addressed. They see this this is an opportunity for the city to address it and um, that they're, they're actively working that out. I, if... Monday nights, uh, city council meets. It is I, I've never seen anything quite like it. It's it's one of the more raucous uh, government meeting. I mean, th- this Monday, I mean, it went from city council members bickering with each other like loudly, like yelling to the point where if you're listening to the live stream, it cuts out. <laughs> Uh, like you know, hitting the I don't know the audio term, but they're they're going. It's too too loud, and 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 just the the crowd is is just shouting people down. It's it's um you know I I covered Richmond City Council for a long time, and I thought things could get get wild there. It's it's nothing like that. Um, the the Charlottesville is is still very much working things out, and and also uh, a number of the people uh you know I pe- 
people are frustrated with the terminology that McAuliffe, former Governor Terry McAuliffe, used that evening, like, uh, you know, go home, you know, his message to the white mm. supremacists. I mean, a lot of the people who were there were from out of state, but a decent number are from in-state. And I, I think that some of the activists are frustrated that, that, that politicians and others want to treat this like a problem that came from outside when, you know, it's, it's everywhere. Were you surprised, though, that, that a lot of these more kind of genteel apologists didn't show up? Uh, what do you mean when you say that? You know, the people you see on Monument Avenue here said, don't take down our monument. But this is tradition. Why don't they take care of their schools first before we... Look, I'm... <laughs> you well, know no, what I, I'm talking about. You well, see no, these guys I remember, say it's a distraction. Um, oh, what's his name from the Sons of Confederate Veterans? Frank, uh... Frank... But he, I think he said at one point in our coverage last summer, it was either after Charlottesville or between the KK rally and KKK rally in Charlottesville, and the, uh, you know that there's a whole spectrum, right, of groups uh, and what they believe. And I think that he, if I remember right, he told us that we didn't want any, we don't want to be anywhere near those guys, and we don't want to be associated with them, or they think it's, they think they have a valid heritage argument and it's undermined by appearing yeah, you with, would appearing think. with the well, clan yeah, and neo because they're not there were people in attendance there but it's not like the people who descended on charlottesville you know cnn vice news got this you know the almost like there's a pulitzer nominated documentary for sending a reporter in there to kind of follow everybody and and and, and do a piece that was broadcast on hbo left and right um it really kind of eclipsed the agenda of, you know, legitimate, uh, this is tradition. And yeah, I, I mean, the, the like traditional heritage crowd, you know, the lost cause narrative, you know, just the, the people you're talking about, they, they studiously avoided that. They, they do, like Bob said, I think they really wish that those people would go away because they they, they, they do not think that they are helping their, their case for the, the need to preserve. Any predictions? No, for... they make the case for a point. They make the case for opponents of the monument that they're, you know, that they're one hundred percent, you know, monuments to white supremacy and the lost cause, and uh, you know, whereas the heritage groups, you know, often their line of reasoning is, well, you need to educate yourself about the real history of the Civil War, and it wasn't all about slavery, and most white Confederates were just defending their homeland and they didn't own slaves and they're really know. parroting all of the stuff that was taught in Virginia textbooks for a really long time that's long since been discredited um, it's and even General Lee we saw there was a great feature in the Atlantic last year by um, the reporter Serwer on General Lee was actually really really rough on his slaves he adds that after a whipping yeah, that I read they'd that. be brined and and then I was always sold you know even in the AP history I don't know if the the you know, 25 years ago, if the professor tried to intimate that he was a kindly general and he did it for for uh, for reasons of valor and heritage and everything, and a lot of that stuff is is rapidly being kind of debunked. I mean, even Woodrow Wilson, they you know, questioning his tenure as as a you know president of Princeton and governor and uh, you know president of the United States and segregating uh, the civil service. It seems like there is quite a reckoning. And to that end, I'm just asking you to close out the monuments thing. What do you think is going to happen to the monuments here? Is it just the con- you know the inertia just leave them alone? And uh, I can answer that. Yeah, there, there's nothing is going to happen anytime soon. How so? Um, well, the city has made it clear that you know they just had this commission to study it, and they recommend removing a single monument, Jefferson Davis. But they've made it clear that they they will only take that action when and if the General Assembly. 
uh, gives them permission to remove those monuments. It's the same issue that Charlottesville is dealing with. They're taking an active legal fight that's still playing itself out in the court system. But essentially, there there is a state law that protects war memorials and and does uh, you know literally say that you can't remove uh, these these monuments. So if one is theoretically winched down uh, by by protesters under cover of night, would the state have to put it back up? Would the city have to put it back up? Yeah, I, I just I just don't know how that would work. Um, the the state owns the the largest monument to Robert E. Lee. Um, I I'd ima- I I can't imagine anyone could do anything with that without like I, that. You would be hard pressed to damage that. I feel, but um, the smaller city owned ones, um, I I don't know how they handle it. they would handle it. I I if I had to guess, I'd say they they'd repair it, but. Open skate, freestyle, sir. Uh, what should we close out with? What should be on our agendas? What are you covering? What are you going to break? What's hot and heavy, hot takes? Well, it's a bad month to ask that question. August in uh, August in Virginia. Um, I got something. You do? Okay, go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, a new state law passed this year, and it was uh, much credit to the, the Daily Press um, down on the peninsula, but... Uh, we we can now get bulk court data from the Virginia court system, and so we are in the process of getting five years worth of uh, data about every criminal case that's made its way through district or civil court. And there's a lot of analysis that I'm personally excited to to do there in terms of um, trends in sentencing, uh, racial disparities in. Uh, the number of people charged with crimes and and how those those uh, charges are handled, um, differences in sentencing among localities, judges. I mean, there's just a tremendous number of possibilities. That's that's kind of how I'm excited to to keep myself busy during the the August doldrums when when really everyone does go on vacation. There's not a lot of news. What's next for the Mercury in terms of of, of steps? I mean, is there a big plan to hire more staff to to a certain extent to get those big benefactors, you have to project bigger than you are. You have to lose money to make the money. Well, we're at... We're huge. (laughs) Huge. We're at at full staff right now, and I can't say when we might be able to add people uh, because that's contingent on attracting more funding. Um, But that is our goal. You asked me uh, previously what the ideal, you know, what the ideal size would be. And I mean, there really isn't one. And tell me, I wish I could have 20 reporters, 30 reporters, you know, but... um, I think to get to, you know, six or seven in the next few years would be great. Um, we have a lot of topics we'd like to cover, and, you know, there's only so much you can do with the four of us. As far as what's happening later this month, uh, you might have heard of some uh, pipeline projects that are a little bit controversial. There is um, a big meeting of the State Water Control Board later this month where they'll um, revisit Basically, the the last opportunity uh, the state has to, you know, delay or derail these projects. So that'll be something that we'll be uh, paying close attention to. Um, You have a uh, signature uh, election, uh, a signature election issue, a signatures on campaign petition issue unfolding in the second district race. And during what's normally a pretty sleepy time um, for campaign news, because usually they don't pick up till, you know, September, October. But uh, I don't know if you followed that. The uh, the Scott Taylor campaign's uh, helpful bid to put an independent candidate on the ballot uh, down there in the second district, and that's playing out, you know, right now, where they're asking the uh, Department of Elections to uh, and a special prosecutor down there in the Virginia Beach area to 
look into whether a lot of those signatures were fraudulent or forged. Um, so that's something we'll be paying close attention to. A number of dead people's names showed up. On yeah, those. several several people signed the nominating petition from beyond the grave. You know, we're still kind of a not so much day to day, but we, you know, we're still finding our niche and our voice and uh, what makes sense for us to cover and what we should leave to other news outlets. So it's very much a learning as we go process on on you know where we fit into the media landscape here. Yeah, I don't know if we made it clear, but our goal is is definitely not to duplicate the the statehouse coverage that's already um, being done fairly well by outlets like the Times-Dispatch, the Washington Post, the Associated Press. Um, is this the last stand for you guys? If this doesn't work, you're going to go back into the armored car business? Probably not in the armored car business. <laughs> I might get into the armored car business. Thanks. I really appreciate it. The Virginia Mercury, a new not-for-profit, nonpartisan, independent news org here based out of the RVA with two veteran newspaper guys, Bob Zulu, Ned Oliver. I am so thankful. Thanks a lot. I hope yeah. that wasn't too boring. Thank you for having us. Go Canes. <laughs> Full disclosure, our engineer is John Valentine. Charlotte Candler is our editorial researcher. Love us, covet us on NPR One and on iTunes at FullDRadio.com. We are hyper-local and vocal. Freezing wages with plummeting circulation. Not for profit, but not by choice. I'm Robin Farzad. Back with you next week. I'm